you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8. What is every kid's favorite road trip question? Are we there yet? Or how much longer? Something along those lines. That question, are we there yet? How much longer? Is not just a question that kids tortured by a road trip ask, but a question that the psalmist asks in lament. How long is a question of lament that comes from a heart that is suffering for a long time? Psalm 35, 17, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. Or Psalm 74, 10, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Or Psalm 94, 3, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? How long is a question that long-term sufferers Ask Those who aren't sure how much longer they can hold on, those who are looking at their circumstances, enduring their agony or affliction, whatever the source of it may be, and thinking, I can't see an end. That's why we ask how long, because you can't see the end of it. And you may relate to that question. Whether you look at macro issues in society and you think, how long will this go on? Or you look at some personal struggle in your life, whether it's chronic pain, deteriorating health, just any, any problem you find yourself in, if you've been in it long enough, you start wondering, I don't know how much longer I can do this. And that thought, that, that's, a, that's a dark place to be. I don't know how much longer I can do this. Daniel 8 holds out bright hope to anyone enduring dark days. It is an incredible gift from God to His church that we have His sure and true words recorded for us like this. And I think this is a timely word for us. Again, as we've said every week through this Daniel series, I think this is a, a word that God meant to give us today. So let's pray and then we'll walk through this text together. Father in heaven, we look to you. As we've already prayed and already told you in song, we look to you and you alone. We are setting our hope on you, the God of the living, not the dead, the God who has in himself life and life eternal and gives that life to all who trust in him. We are trusting in you and praying that you would Feed us and nourish our souls by your word and your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to take this text, kind of like I did a couple weeks ago, and just work through it and explain the vision as we go verse by verse. And the vision happens in the first part of the chapter, and the interpretation comes in the latter. So I'm going to kind of splice those two together as we go. Look with me at Daniel 8, verse 1. Bright hope 
for those enduring dark days. Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So this is Daniel's second of four visions, and he receives this one, he tells us in verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar, the Babylonian king. That's important because the setting of the vision, Daniel sees himself in Susa, which is the capital of Persia in the province of Elam, not Babylon. So that's a neighboring kingdom to the east of where Daniel was. Babylon is kind of the world empire at this time, but he has a vision of himself in Persia. Okay, that's the setting. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. You jump ahead to verse 20, the angel Gabriel gives Daniel the interpretation. Here's the interpretation of that ram with two horns, one larger than the other, charging northward and westward and southward, and nobody can stand in his path. Gabriel's interpretation, as for the ram, verse 20, that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So it makes sense that Daniel sees this ram standing on the banks of the canal in Susa, the capital of Persia. The horns are unequal because... Media and Persia were two nations that joined together, and Persia surpassed Media in power and in greatness. That's depicted by these two horns of unequal height. And Daniel witnesses the ram charging westward, northward, southward. Now remember, Daniel's receiving this vision under King Belshazzar in Babylon. Babylonia is still the world power, but just a decade later, the Persians invade. So Daniel receives this before that happens, and uh, Persia, sure enough, invades toward the west. They were in what would be modern-day Iran, and they move into Babylon, which would be in modern-day Iraq. Babylon is like 50 miles from Baghdad today. Persia also invaded the north into the area of the Caspian Sea, and they invaded the south into Africa, just as God showed Daniel ahead of time. And according to verse 4, the ram was unstoppable. When Persia began to advance, nobody could stand in its path. Look at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. The interpretation comes in verse 21. Gabriel tells Daniel, the goat is the king of Greece And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So that's why Daniel sees this goat coming from the west. He's in Persia in the east. The goat's coming from the west, from Greece. And the horn is this king. That would be Alexander the Great, who lived from 356 B.C. to 323 B.C. His father, Philip, was the king of Macedonia. When Philip was assassinated, Alexander was a young man, like 20 years old, And he killed his father's assassins, and every rival faction that rose up and tried to grab the throne, Alexander crushed them. 
and then he gathered the military, and he launched this military campaign to the east. And just as Daniel's vision depicts, he moved so fast and with such ease, it was as if he moved without touching the ground. Nobody stood in his way, and so he launches this military campaign toward Persia in the east. And verse 6, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Now remember, apocalyptic literature is visual, highly visual, which means we're meant to visualize this. Have you ever seen rams or goats butting heads? Think of like bighorn sheep. When they crack those horns together, it's unreal that they do that without suffering concussions as far as we know. And they, they do it repeatedly, and their horns don't break off. So this is quite a dramatic scene when the goat strikes the ram, and the ram's horns break. That is such a powerful collision. So, so picture that in your mind. Just like that mighty Medo-Persia, unstoppable in verse 4, is clobbered by Greece. And as God revealed to Daniel... Alexander the Great comes from the west, and he collided with Darius and the Persians in a battle at the Granicus River in modern-day Turkey, and Alexander was greatly outnumbered, but he took his men, charged across the river, and Darius had all of these foot soldiers and all of this cavalry, and Alexander broke through the line and destroyed him and continued to the east. And over the next three years, he conquered Persia, and he claimed global titles, A title like President of the United States is a big deal. Alexander could lay claim to these titles that others had before him. Lord of Asia, King of Persia, Pharaoh of Egypt. He was the king of the world. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. The interpretation comes in verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Sure enough, Alexander the Great died suddenly in his prime, 32 years old. He's the king of the world. He's preparing another military campaign further to the east. He's just getting started, and he fell sick. And he lay sick. Story goes, for 14 days, he couldn't talk, he couldn't say a word, he was in agony, and he died. Just like God had revealed to Daniel ahead of time. And when he died, you can imagine the power vacuum that that left. The entire known world is under his control. Suddenly he's dead, nobody saw that coming, so there's no successor set up, and so four of his generals split the kingdom. Antigonus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus were the four generals who divided up the kingdom just like God revealed to Daniel in this vision. Verse 9. Now, out of one of them, one of those four kingdoms, there came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. 
So, so here's a little horn, and it's not the same little horn that we saw last week in Daniel chapter 7. That little horn grew out of the beast that represented Rome, okay? This little horn is growing out of the goat that represents Greece. So different visions focusing on different details in history using overlapping imagery, but those were wild predator beasts. These are rams and goats, different little horns. And most interpreters are in agreement on this point that this little horn in Daniel 8 represents Antiochus IV Epiphanes, one of the kings of the Seleucid dynasty. The details, in fact, are so remarkable as they're laid out here by Daniel hundreds of years in advance that it couldn't really be anybody else. Antiochus, that name, means the opposer, which sounds to me like the kind of name that a pro wrestler in our day might take to himself, the opposer. And then Antiochus gave himself the nickname Epiphanes, which means manifestation of a god. Is that, he, he named himself that. Usually other people give you nicknames. He nicknamed himself, a god has shown up. The opposer, a god. There was a Greek historian who uh, gave him the nickname Epimenes, which means madman, but he he called himself Epiphanes. And just as verse 9 says, he invaded Egypt to the south, Persia and other countries to the east. But most significant to our text, he turned his attention to the glorious land, which is a reference to Israel, to Jerusalem in particular. And Jerusalem became the special focus of all of Antiochus's wrath and anger and frustration. Whenever he was frustrated anywhere else, he took it out on the people of Israel. Verse 10, it grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So in our mind, we think of stars being thrown down from the heavens. Again, remember, this is visual, symbolic. What does that mean? It may refer to the destruction, the desecration of the temple when Antiochus looted the temple and threw down the furniture in the temple. It could refer to the persecution and murder of the Jews. It might have in mind the assassination of Onias III, who was high priest there. This represents his destruction and his vengeance that he poured out on the Jews in Jerusalem. Verse 11, it became great even as great as the prince of the host, which likely refers to God. And the, re the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, the little horn, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So perhaps the most incredible thing about this is you have to remember Daniel's vision is happening in Babylon in the 6th century BC. There's no temple in Jerusalem because Daniel and the other Jews in Babylon are exiles and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, took all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the bronze out of the temple and burned it and took all these exiles off to Babylon. So when Daniel has this vision about somebody who's going to desecrate the temple, that means there's going to be a temple again. So that's a big deal. That would be a hopeful thing, but here again is a vision foretelling the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem, the glorious land. And Antiochus Epiphanes 
did indeed exalt himself against God, the prince of the host. I mean, he called himself Epiphanes, manifestation of a God. And he did actually desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. He was awful. He set out to make all of Judea Greek. And so he did that by going after their worship. He realized that worship is the outward expression of a culture. And if you change the way a people worships, you can change a culture. So he forbid their dietary laws and forced them by law to eat unclean meat by threat of death. You know, the practice of the Jews to circumcise their baby boys on the eighth day, he would send his soldiers around every month to inspect the homes for newborn babies, and if they had been circumcised, he would hang the mother and the son. He was awful. He sent his men in on a Sabbath, and they massacred almost all of the males in Jerusalem, gathered together in the temple worshiping that day. And he's probably most infamous for the way he defiled the temple. He set up a statue of Zeus, the Greek and Roman god. And then he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple in order to defile that place because he knew that pigs were unclean to the Jews. I mean, he was a monster. Here's how Gabriel in the interpretation describes him, verses 23 through 25. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So, there's some interesting history for you dealing with Persia and Greece and the Seleucid dynasty and Antiochus Epiphanes, but why do those details matter? What's going on here? What does this have to do with Daniel in exile? What does it have to do with us today? Well, here's the thing. Despite the fact that rams and goats and horns feature so prominently in Daniel's vision, the angel Gabriel actually calls this vision, you look at verse 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings. What's that? Where did that come from? Well, look at verse 13. Daniel says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled under foot? That's the question. How long? How long will this last? How long will God's people suffer like this? How long will sacrifices in the temple be cut off again? How long will the temple be desecrated again? How long will there be an end to this agony, to this suffering? How long will God allow this to happen? That's the question. That's the question that Daniel and the exiles in Babylon wondered because they were in exile. It's the question that God's people would wonder under Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a question that rises in the hearts of God's people anytime we suffer in dark days. And the answer is given in verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then 
The sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Those words would have been words of unimaginable hope, both to the Jews in exile in Babylon like Daniel and to the Jews living in Jerusalem hundreds of years later under Antiochus Epiphanes. First, their suffering would be limited. This is a limited number of days in this judgment, 2,300 evenings and mornings. There are a couple of different ways we could take that. We're not quite sure. It could be about you know, six years, three and a half months, which would line up from the time that Antiochus invaded and occupied Jerusalem uh, from about the time of the assassination of the high priest until the day when Judas Maccabeus cleansed the temple and restored it. That, that was about six and a half years or so. Or there's a possibility that evenings and mornings refers to the sacrifices that were offered in the evening and in the morning, in which case it would be about half that amount of time, three and a half years, which could refer to the time from which Antiochus desecrated the temple to when it was cleansed, about three and a half years. Either way, the point is how long? For a limited amount of time, and then it will be over. And here's the promise. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. God will again be worshipped in that place, even though this evil man rose up, exalted himself as God, blasphemes God, sets up the image of an idol, sacrifices pig's blood there, and you think, if you're living in those days, it could not possibly get any worse. It all must be over. It's not over. God will be worshipped, and his name will be great in all the earth. There will be light after darkness. Look at verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. That's probably God speaking to the angel there. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I... To me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Okay, so here's where we have to be careful. A lot of people read that and they go, Oh, this is about the end of the world. But it doesn't say it's about the end of the world. Okay, so we have to ask the question first the end of what? It's about the time of the end. The end of what is the question? If it refers to the end of the world, that means the vision starts with the king of Persia, destroyed by the king of Greece, and then we hop in a time machine and fly way into the future, thousands of years, to the end of the world. With all these gaps in between, which doesn't make a lot of sense there. The key is in verse 19. The end of what? Verse 19. Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end, the end of the indignation. That's the end. What's the indignation? That is a word, almost a technical word, that the prophets use to refer to God's judgment. It refers to God's wrath, not just a feeling that God has, but when God actually acts in power to punish evil. Look at Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation, same Hebrew word, Ezekiel 21, 31, and I will pour out my 
indignation upon you. I will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and I will deliver you into the hands of brutish men, skillful to destroy. This is one of those words where uh, I could just go on and on and on. I just have to cut out all the other verses I could show you because we don't have time. But indignation, the Hebrew word here, is used again and again by all the prophets to speak of God's judgment. So here's the paraphrase of verse 19. Gabriel is saying to Daniel, I'm going to explain to you what will happen at the end of God's judgment against Israel, for his judgment has an end. I'm going to explain to you how things are going to happen at the end of his judgment with Israel because his judgment has an end. It doesn't go on forever and ever. It comes to an end. And that is the good news promised in Daniel 8. Look at the very end, verses 26 and 27, the vision of the evenings and the mornings. It's the vision of the limited time God has set. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So when Daniel's told, seal it up, that doesn't mean like lock it up so that nobody finds it, nobody reads it. It means preserve it. Seal it up because it's for some generations from now. And it's going to be a source of hope to them in those days. So seal it up, preserve it so that it's available to them when they're living through those days. There will be light after darkness. That true, that vision of the future for Daniel And for us, ancient history, that is a gracious gift from God to his people meant to sustain us in dark days. There is light after darkness. I think it's the same truth that's summed up in Psalm 30, verse 5. Listen to these words. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. That's a comparison. His anger is so brief. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night. Joy comes with the morning. That's the truth summed up in the Protestant Reformation motto that John Calvin is famous for, post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. After darkness, light. That, that is this whole sermon in three words. After darkness, Because God limits darkness. I mean, just those two words, after darkness, implies there is something after darkness. It's just not a darker and darker and darker and darker until full darkness. After darkness, light, light eternal. I want to look at those two things for the remainder of our time. First, that God limits evil. He does. In this world, in history, God limits evil. He limits darkness. First, we see that God limits evil in the fact that God limits the sins of his people. The the fact that God judges his people for their covenant unfaithfulness to him means that God does not tolerate sin forever. There is an end in sight. Verses 12 and 23 tell us this has to do with God's judgment. Verse 12, a host will be given over to it, that's the horn, Antiochus, together with the regular burnt offerings. He's going to desecrate the altar. He's going to put an end to sacrifices for a period of time. Why? Because of transgression. This will be God's judgment again on his people. Verse 23, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face shall arise. There are limits. When it looks to you like sin is getting 
more and more pervasive in the world? Don't worry. God sets a limit. There is a line, and when it hits that, God says, okay, that's enough. That's enough. And then he steps in, even after the people of God return to the glorious land from their exile in Babylon, and that first generation of returned exiles rebuilt the wall and the temple in Jerusalem, and they said, all right, let's not do that again. We just went through the exile because of our sins and the sins of our fathers. Let's not do that again. The people of God back in Jerusalem quickly turned away from God again to idolatry and unbelief and disobedience. And God is so slow to anger. He is so incredibly patient. That's why if it looks to you like his judgment is taking a while, it's just because he's patient. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's so patient. And when sin reaches the limit that God set for it in advance, then he steps in and judges. And even that is mercy, right? The fact that God says enough sin, that's mercy. We want him to do that, right? We want man who is of the earth to terrify no more. So when God steps in and judges, something that's terrifying if you're the one getting judged, it is a kindness to all of the faithful in the land. I mean, all of human history points to this. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God was serious and he kicked them out of Eden. You go to the flood, God was serious and he put an end to that sin. Over and over and over, God puts a limit on sin. That is so encouraging and it's really sobering. Lest we think that God no longer acts in these ways, like Old Testament God judged people for sin, New Testament God no longer judges, He still purifies His people. He still deals with His church and cleanses sin out of His church. Listen to these words from the New Testament, Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. New Testament, after the coming of Jesus. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, Old Covenant, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, you can just go back through history and see, it's recorded for you in the Old Testament, all of their sins were punished, God sent judgment, Warning first, then judgment, just like he said, and the author of Hebrews says, if all of their sins received a just retribution, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a sober warning to the church, not to tolerate sin, not to just sit inside and look at sinners out in the world and say, oh, God is so bad out there, to start here and say, God, where is their sin in my life? And to repent and turn from sin. And the uncomfortable truth is that what we see throughout this lesson book of how God dealt with his people is that God was able to use the wicked to judge his people. He used wicked King Nebuchadnezzar. He used blasphemous Antiochus Epiphanes. He used wicked people who did awful things to cleanse and to purify his people. And in our day, it's the same. God can use any wicked ruler he wants. He can use whatever he wills to get the attention of his people and to cause us to turn to him in repentance and faith. But here's the other way God limits evil. His discipline is temporary. We already saw 
This is the vision about the latter end of the indignation. There's an end to that. There's an end in sight. And after using evildoers as instruments of his judgment, he then turns and holds them accountable for the evil that they did. I would encourage you on your own, go read Habakkuk 1 and 2 later today as part of your Lord's Day worship and rest. Habakkuk 1 and 2, where the prophet cries out to God, how is this fair? How could you possibly use wicked Babylon? Look at their evil. Look how bad they are. How could you use them against your people Israel? It's not fair. And God says, don't worry, I will deal with them later. Or go read Isaiah 10, same thing. After God wields evildoers, he's able to hold them accountable as well. Antiochus Epiphanes caused fearful destruction. He threw truth to the ground. He prospered and succeeded. He exalted himself above God. And then, all of a sudden, verse 25, did you catch that when we read it? He shall be broken, but not by any human hand. Just like that. At the peak of his evil, he's broken? How? Not by any human hand. Sure enough, Antiochus was not killed in battle. He was not assassinated like so many kings. It wasn't even in the revolt led by the Maccabeans in Judea that he died. He got sick, and he agonized in physical pain and emotional turmoil for several days, and then he died. You can read about it in the apocryphal accounts, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, by no human hand. So what we see in Daniel 8 is that God is the one who wielded Antiochus. We're told that he rose up in power, but not by his own power. That means even this is under God's sovereignty. God wields Antiochus, he rises up against God, and in the end he's crushed by God. That's a word for us. When you see evil increasing and abounding with no end in sight that you can imagine, don't despair. You can be sure wickedness will never advance a single nanometer beyond what God permits. And it makes no difference whether or not you can imagine how it's going to end. I just can't think of how these people could change and turn in repentance. That's okay. It doesn't have to be by a human hand. God is the ancient of days. And that is true of every godless, blasphemous, perverse ideology that exists today. It will not ever get very far. It might be further than you wish. It won't get very far in history. So take the long view. Okay? Don't base your hope on today's headlines. Just think about all the rises and falls we saw in this chapter already. Babylon was great until all of a sudden Persia conquered them in a night. Persia was unstoppable until all of a sudden a king comes out of Greece and knocks them down. Greece is on a rampage until all of a sudden Alexander the Great dies. Antiochus Epiphanes is persecuting the people of God, blaspheming God himself, and abruptly he dies by no human hand. There are two truths there of how God limits evil, and in the New Testament these are tied together, joined like this in 1 Peter 4.17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Judgment always begins at the household of God. That's sobering. That means wake up, sit up. Ask God to search you and cleanse you. Is there any undealt with, unconfessed sin in your life? Judgment begins at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? At least we have hope. In Jesus, your sins are forgiven. So you can turn and repent and confess your sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But what will become of those who don't trust in the gospel that God has provided for them? That is a terrifying thing. To that judgment, there will be no end. If you are in Christ by faith, you have hope. And if you are not trusting in Jesus right now, then Jesus says in John 3, 36, the wrath of God remains on you. So turn. Turn and trust in Jesus. Turn and forsake your sins and be forgiven. After darkness, because darkness is limited, light. God's light is eternal. There's a promise in this text in verse 14. We saw it already. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And as God showed Daniel, Judas Maccabeus in the second century BC cleansed and restored the temple, restored worship in the temple. For several days they went through the ceremony that the law gives, that the altar would be cleansed. It had been defiled. They, de- they got together. They had some people read the law. What should we do? They decided to tear down that altar, throw it out, Build a new one with unhewn stones just as the law commands. And on this new altar, let us sacrifice right and acceptable sacrifices to God. That cleansing of the temple under Judas Maccabeus is now the festival the Jews celebrate called Hanukkah. They call it the festival of lights. The temple was restored and cleansed. And from that period until Jesus came. I mean, this this is a big deal in history. Why did God show this to Daniel? Because this was the end of God's judgment on his people until the Messiah would come. And the temple was restored. And then the Messiah came. After darkness, light. That's the way God always works with his people. His anger is for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. That paradigm, that comparison, anger is for a moment, favor is for a lifetime. That is so crucial because it will shape your view of history and your understanding of current events today. It determines whether or not you will engage with the world. Is what we're living through brief? And temporary, or should we hunker down and wait for the rapture? Some people think that the climax of the world is the destruction of the world. I think I said this last week. Ultimately, it's not the destruction of the world, it's the redemption of the world. When God revealed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai and he gave his covenant name, he revealed his name in terms of that same contrast between his judgment and his mercy. Listen to these words. It's in Exodus 25 and 6. It's in Exodus 34, 7. It's in Deuteronomy 7, 9. God is saying this to his people again and again and again. I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting, here's his judgment that's limited, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So we know, maybe you've lived this in your own family. The sins of your fathers and your grandfathers can come down the line, right? You can be adversely affected by the sins of past generations, for a few generations only. How merciful of God that he cuts it off at three or four generations, but showing steadfast love to thousands, that is, thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God shows steadfast love to thousands of generations. Okay, I don't know if you've ever stopped and done the math. Let's say a generation is 20 years. That's 20,000 years. That means like maybe we're in the first half of human history if there were only going to be a thousand generations, but this is a number meaning so big, so many generations that God shows steadfast love. 
It's just incomparable, the, the, the difference between brief punishment, extravagant, steadfast love, and covenant faithfulness to those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's what I want you to get for your life, that whatever hardship, whatever affliction or agony or frustration you are going through or may go through in the future, even if, even if it is God's discipline in your life because of sin, it's only temporary if you trust in Christ. It's only temporary, and it's nothing, nothing in comparison to the blessings that he lavishes on those who trust in him. What does Scripture say, 2 Corinthians 4, 17? This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. That is the perspective that we need, light after darkness. And the ultimate guarantee and assurance to us that God does act this way in history is not just how he dealt with the Jews in the second century, but the work of Christ. To, to every Jew who heard this vision that Daniel received and sealed up and they read for hundreds of years until the days of Antiochus Epiphany, the most gut-wrenching part of this vision was not the global dominance of Persia or Greece or the Seleucids. It was the desecration of the temple. To think, the temple's going to be rebuilt and desecrated again? That would have been heart-wrenching. And yet this promise, God would restore that temple. And that promise foreshadowed one who is even better. What did Jesus say in John 2, 19? Destroy this temple, speaking of his own body, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews have been through a couple rounds of this, the destruction of the temple. And once again, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed in AD 70. Once for all, no more sacrifices. That's the way it still stands today. But there is a temple that God has raised up, the body of Jesus who took on flesh and bore our sins in himself. He was destroyed not for his own sins, but as God's judgment on the sins of all who are united to Jesus by faith. He was desecrated. He was defiled and raised up again, as the assurance that there is light after darkness. This is how God deals with his people, how he works in history. Resurrection follows death. After darkness, light. Joy comes with the morning. God did not abandon Christ to the grave. He set a limit, three days, and he raised him. So when evil looks to you like it's spreading with ease, victorious, don't despair. Our king conquered the grave, which means we are people of the resurrection. Okay, so when you see darkness in the world, I, this is how I want the people of Emmaus Road Church to think about it. Is it the darkness because the sun is setting and it's getting darker and darker outside? Or is it the, the darkness in the morning when the sun is rising on the earth? Of the increase of his government, that is Jesus, there will be no end. The light of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter until the full light of day, Proverbs says. So when you see darkness, just think, it's just the early morning, and the light of Christ is yet dawning on the earth, because after darkness, there's light. And that's where our hope is secured in the triumph of Jesus, who now rules and reigns forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father.
Thank you for the light of your glory that you have revealed in the person and work of Jesus in the face of Christ. Thank you that we are in Christ not because of anything that we have done, but we can say you, the God who caused light to shine out of darkness at the creation of the world, you have made the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in our dark hearts. You did it with a word, with a command. It was when your gospel was shared with us that your spirit made us see and we were blind and now we see. Thank you for that light, for the light of Christ. Thank you that the light of Christ is shining, that we do not yet see all things in subjection to him, but we see him crowned with glory and honor. We know that that light will fill the earth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as deep as the waters that cover the sea. And so we pray, amen. Let it be so.